January 19, 2022. That's the date of this podcast, the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. In this podcast, I'm going to tell you why you're no good. I'm sorry. I know it's the new year. We should get off to a good start. But you know what? I'm seeing evidence that you're just not as good as you think you are. What, how can I say that? What, what am I talking about? You know what? You're not good at taking care of yourself. You're not good at measuring things, you know, and that's kind of sad. You're not good at comorbidity management. You've heard me say this before, but you know what you are good at? You're really good at fending for your patients, um, and you're really good at learning from podcasts. So let's just see what we can learn in this episode of the Room Now podcast. I've got a meta-analysis of something that we treat a lot, or... I don't know if you treat a lot of this. You should be because um, the oral maxillofacial surgeons are looking to you for guidance. They have these patients with chronic TMJ disease, and they don't know what to do with them. And that's because a high percentage of them don't have TMJ problems from arthritis. They've got TMJ problems from fibromyalgia. Yeah, that's the right. That's true. A big meta-analysis of 153 trials in 8,700 patients who have chronic pain associated with TMGA disorders looked into what the interventions were that were of the most uh, value to the patient, mainly looking at function and pain as a primary outcome. Most effective was number one, mm, big hint here, it sounds like fibromyalgia. Number one was cognitive behavioral therapy. Next on the list, Therapy-assisted jaw mobilization, trigger point injections, jaw exercise, jaw stretching, manipulation, and acupuncture. Doesn't sound like an inflammatory disorder to me, or degenerative for that matter, but again, TMJ is something that is a prime manifestation in patients who do have uh, fibromyalgia. Uh, I mentioned at the top of this that you're not so good at taking care of yourself. Uh, JAMA reported this week a 3,000 U.S. physician um, cross-sectional study showed that 60% of you took less than three weeks of vacation per year. I don't know about you, but most of the physicians I know have struck a deal for you know, more than three weeks of vacation, usually like six weeks of vacation. And so for you to take less than three weeks reminds me of my friends who are burning the midnight oil and not taking vacations and not appreciated by their bosses. And yeah, they've got, they're basically getting self-inflicted medical um, problems. 70% of you are working while you're on vacation um, and both of these findings uh, are very typical findings of those who have higher rates of burnout. Again, take care of yourself. If you're not happy, if you're not great, how can you be a great physician for your patients? How can you be a great leader for your team? How can you be a great spouse or mate or best friend? Um, take care of yourselves. It's the most important thing you can do day to day. Here's another bit of evidence that I found a little surprising. You know, there are um, many rheumatologists in the United States have banded together in cooperatives that have to do with 
um, practice management, buying power, etc. One of these networks is called the ARN, American Rheumatology Network. A study of their um, practices between 2014 and 2021, they looked at, um, in this study, over 15,000 new TNF inhibitor starts. Presumably, TNF inhibitors are being started because of increased activity, right? Um, yet, when they looked at the charts of these individuals, everybody in the networks on the same EMR, only 45% had a disease activity measure. And the main ones that, that were being used were CDI and the RAPID3. Of the people who didn't have a disease activity measure, only half had 47%, not even half, had either a tender joint count, a swollen joint count, or even uh, a pain score. Again, the consequences of this are, you know, they talk about in the paper, it was actually published in MedPage today as a report, but this is not good. I mean, I think you have to, and you're very talented, obviously, in, in doing pattern recognition and making diagnoses based on either conversation or watching the patient move. But again, to not have documented disease activity measures, I think, is a, is a mistake. And I'll use the line that Ted Pincus uh, often invoked, and he had many great <laughs> lines about how we fail in not measuring but, you know, the simple one is, can you treat hypertension without measuring blood pressure? You know, can you treat diabetes without measuring, you know, fasting blood sugar or an A1C? We have an A1C, um, and it's pretty simple. It's not a blood test. It's a, it's a, a good exam. Um, Mayo Clinic has been infamous for their great work in rheumatology and rheumatoid arthritis specifically. This group up there, John Davis, uh, Kroos, Drs. Croson, Myacidova, um, there's a bunch that I'm probably leaving out, um, have done a lot of work on multimorbidity. And this particular study that was recently published showed that um, RA patients do have multimorbidity, that this multimorbidity increases the risk of serious infectious events. In a study of 911 patients, two-thirds of whom were seropositive, the rate of, multi, of, of serious infection was four per 100 patient years. That's about right. And just to put this in perspective, how, how does that relate to you and your practice? Again, if you had 911 RA patients, um, how many would you think would have a serious infectious event? Their number was 17%, and that rate was four per 100. And that's about, I think, average. But the presence of morbidities, especially high-risk comorbidities like bipolar disease, CKD, COPD, chronic uh, skin ulceration, increase the uh, SIE risk three to five-fold. So again, this is the real challenge in managing these people. These, the sickest patients need the, the most therapy, but they're also now the patients at greatest risk for the hazards that we often ascribe to therapy when it's really due to the, the disease and the comorbidity. A uh, very interesting study comes out of Japan about JAK inhibitor use um, and what happens with uh, perioperatively in RA patients on JAK inhibitors who are going to undergo orthopedic surgery. So in this retrospective study, they looked at 62 patients that were on a JAK inhibitor and 62 on a biologic DMART, 
and they showed that um, overall there wasn't a lot of differences, but the JAK inhibitor patients had more post-operative flares, 29% versus 12%. This was even more significant if the JAK inhibitor was held more than 11 days. Other post-op complications, wound complications, wound infections, this sort of thing, didn't differ between the JAKs and the biologic DMARs. I put this one in here because it goes to uh, a very important point on JAK inhibitors. Fast in their onset, fast in their flare off rate when you hold therapy. Being off a JAK inhibitor for seven days may be the beginning of the patient getting worse. In this study, it was 11 days. This reminds me of the very first time I consulted with the makers of tofacitinib. They presented a study to me and a bunch of other rheumatologists in advisory meeting. I don't know, 250, 260 patients in a six-week trial of rheumatoid arthritis. And I thought, who are these knuckleheads? Do they not know what they're doing? The, the, the size of the trial is right, but a six-week endpoint? What are they talking about here? I mean, and this was a brand new therapy. This is a long time ago. Um, and I was shocked when I saw that patients on tofacitinib were getting tremendously better by six weeks. So yes, they work fast, but then if you stop them, hold them, they're going to flare fast, which is why I think the rule that the ACR has on what you do with your, your DMARD and your biologic is that you don't stop it. And you can take it throughout the, the surgery. Or if you stop it, you stop it at less than one dosing interval, considering the drug half-life. So if I had to stop a JAK inhibitor prior to surgery, I'd only want to be off for seven days, which means right after surgery, they got to go back on the JAK inhibitor like on day two or day three. So stop five days before, you start three days after, two days after. That's how your patient stays under good control. Um, comorbidity came up a few times this past week. A study of comorbidity in uh, dermatomyositis compared um, uh, dermatomyositis patients with um, an RA cohort. And basically, dermatomyositis patients um, have a much higher risk of cardiovascular comorbidity than even do RA. Um, I think I, I, I meant to put another study in here that was like this, but I'll, it's down the list, so let me go, let me go on. Um, Non-steroidals, uh, an interesting review, talked uh, this week about the risk of uh, cancer with non-steroidals, and if you know this area at all, you would know that there's an inverse relationship here. Most non-steroidals, including COX-2 inhibitors, are associated with lower risk of cancers right? Especially we see this in GI cancers uh, with less colon cancer, presumably due to the high use of non-steroidals. But it's been also seen for many others, head and neck, breast and whatnot. Anyway, in this review, they just list the many cancers that have been associated with what looks like a lower risk if you're on a non-steroidal. That includes brain cancers, breast cancer, esophageal, stomach, head and neck, hepatocellular, Cholangiocarcinoma, colorectal, endometrial, lung, ovary, prostate, and pancreatic cancer rates are lower in people on chronic non-steroidals and COX-2s. Yet, the big takeaway home point of this was NSAID shouldn't be used to prevent cancers.
That's really the important part. And you know what? When I was doing my fellowship in 84, I started, you know, non-steroidals were all the rage in clinical trials. Everybody was on a non-steroidal. Now when I see um, patients being managed and managed by our, our fellows and young rheumatologists, they're using much less non-steroidals. And I think that's probably okay. Non-steroidals do have a lot of side effects, but they do have some benefits. And you might need to negotiate that in any particular patient. It's an individual decision, is it not? A retrospective study of RA patients on TNF. Um, and they looked at a bunch of different TNFs and they looked at um, serologies, drug levels, anti-drug antibodies. And they showed that um, if you were had a high baseline rheumatoid factor um, and you were taking an antibody that has an FC portion um, based therapy like infliximab or adalimumab, that actually tended to lower drug levels. High titer rheumatoid factor was binding the antibodies, infliximab and adalimumab, and lowering drug levels. But this was not seen with sertilizumab. Again, this was a report, like the report by Smolin's group at ACR 2023. Um, and, and this is a, a totally different group that looked at, at this kind of uh, analysis. Infliximab and adalimumab, um, patients uh, that had high rheumatoid factor had more dropouts um, versus those that were on sertilizumab. So the dropout rates were 70 and uh, 75 and 80% with adalimumab and infliximab, but only 33% for sertilizumab. The question is, um, in very, very high titer rheumatoid factor, might antibody-based therapy that, again, where there's an FC portion that the rheumatoid factor can bind to, might not, may that, maybe that's a problem. Again, this is an issue just being scratched upon with these two sort of, um, I guess, retrospective reviews. I think I'd like to see a prospective analysis of this. Um, when you don't have, uh, you know, uh, the opportunity to do prospective data, sometimes you've got to go with meta-analyses, and they are not as strong. And we do report a number of meta-analyses and systematic reviews on Room Now, and I always want you to know that those should be head scratchers that rather than proof of concept. Here's another one that looks at the relationship between um, RA and non-surgical uh, periodontal disease or basically periodontitis. 49 studies, 10 RCTs, um, and basically showed that in the short term uh, that patients with periodontitis will benefit um, when their RA is being treated and similarly and, and vice versa. You know, RA patients where you treat the periodontitis, the RA gets better. These are very, you know, again, it's it's hard to come up with a, there's no good trial, by the way, that proves this point. But, and these are all relatively small small studies that make this point. But that's always been the supposition. You know, periodontal disease, it has the same biology and milieu as does synovitis as far as cytokines and cells and whatnot. Uh, and uh, we think that's part of the mucosal theory as to why people get RA. It's one of the earliest places where you can have a microbiome shift that may add to the inflammation or the causal RA. So this kind of data is always important. And maybe it says that we should be more proactive about dental care in our patients with RA. Um, insurance claims data. This is the uh, uh, one I was trying to talk about earlier. 33,000 RA patients compared to 1,000 um, myositis patients showed that overall um, the myositis patients were getting less 
statin use compared to RA patients, even when they had hyperlipidemia. Um, it was significantly less. Um, yet, if you were a, 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 a myositis patient with hyperlipidemia and you were given statins, you had a lower mortality rate than patients who weren't getting statins. This is a reminder that we need to co-manage um, the comorbidities. Uh, we can start it. We can remind the patients. We can follow it. Um, we can send them to their primary care to manage these things like uh, hyperlipidemia manage, management. Um, I like this report that we published yesterday about the SPACE study and making an earlier diagnosis of uh, spondyloarthritis. You know, the data on spondyloarthritis, pretty clear in saying that um, there's a, a problem of, um, of delays in diagnoses, right? Um, and there is a study, this SPACE study that started a number of years ago, over 500 patients with greater than three months of chronic um, low back pain, does not have to be inflammatory back pain, uh, with adults over age 45, uh, and they, um, they were being referred, they were all referred to get into the study to see how many of them were going to have spondylitis and, 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 and whatnot. In this study, the diagnosis of axial spondyloarthritis was made in 32% upon first baseline visit with a rheumatologist. That when they were followed for another two years, uh, another 30% were also diagnosed. Uh, and uh, and the, so, they're all, so it's, it is important that they, those people see you. It is important that you follow them because that can change. Uh, a number of them, um, the diagnosis was revised um, over time. Um, and nonetheless, um, at least a third of these patients have some diagnostic uncertainty. There were some patients whose MR changed over that two-year period, and sometimes you might want to do repeat MRs. Now, I don't really do MRs on patients referred to me for spondyloarthritis. I do x-rays, and that's about it. They basically said, it showed in this study, that over two years, there were eight patients. Again, there was, a, what was the total? 552 coming in. There was um, 175 and 165 that were diagnosed clinically or with criteria. There were eight patients who developed new sacroiliitis over two years. Seven out of the eight were B27 positive. Five out of eight were males. The point being that repeat MR is a very low yield pr uh, procedure. But the author said, you know, maybe if you're male and you're B27 positive, maybe it has some utility. I think that the predictive value of that is pretty low, such that I'm going to continue to not do that unless it's a clinical trial. I like this report from JAMA Derm. That was two weeks ago. This is about drug-induced dermatomyositis, so we certainly um, don't talk about that very often. This was a literature search of 134 studies, um, and they only identified 165 cases. So it's not a common phenomenon. The drugs that are known to cause dermatomyositis are hydroxyurea. You don't use that very much. They don't even use that very much in dermatology anymore. The checkpoint inhibitors, you're probably aware of that, statins, and lipid-lowering agents, penicillamine, and yes, TNF inhibitors. Uh, the interesting thing about this cohort of drug-induced dermatomyositis is that the mean time from the start of the drug to the the manifestation of dermatomyositis is about 60 days, two months. About half of them have cancer. The most common one was CML, 22%, melanoma, 6%, breast cancer, 3%. 
Um, about 10% had a prior rheumatic disease, most of those being RA, a few with some kind of muscle disease. That's kind of confusing, is it not? I think the takeaway on this is besides the drugs, hydroxyurea, checkpoint inhibitors, statins, um, uh, lipid-lowering agents, penicillamine, TNFs, the take-home is that muscle weakness is not a common presentation, 44%. They um, also have a low incidence of interstitial lung disease, 31% and a low incidence of ANA positivity, 32%. Again, you're good at fending for your patients. Um, and, you know, I think that that uh, there are two reports this week that I think are helping you and are, 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 are underlying this. One is a report that Florida actually has legislatively approved, have been approved for them to import drugs from Canada. Um, and, you know, that's been a kind of a big issue in um, in the in you know the agencies that a lot of people want to do this, you can get drugs cheaper in Canada, and it is legal for individuals in the United States to buy their drugs from Canada. I've been sending my patients to Canada for years, especially for drugs that were way too expensive in the United States, like colchicine. Um, but whether it should be done by a municipality, a state like Florida. This was the, the door on this was opened up by the, um, the Trump administration. Alex Azar, um, well, who is this uh, um, uh, head of uh, uh, HHS, HHS uh, Health and Human Services, sort of paved the way for this. And then recent legislation by Biden actually allowed for this to happen. So how is this going to happen? It's going to be Medicare and Medicaid patients in Florida, only certain drugs. But I think this is a big step forward. You know, we should be working hard at lowering the co cost of drugs. And if we got to go to Canada to do it, I'm all for it. And I'll, I'm behind it. The other big item this week is um, CMS um, approved its final rule on, um, on uh, prior authorizations uh, for drugs. You know, and I'm hearing more and more from all of you that, that prior authorizations are killing you. I mean, it's gotten worse and much, much worse. And especially the idiot prior auths for aspirin and drugs that shouldn't require prior authorizations. This is greed and stupidity resulting in more work for you. Well, at least CMS has heard you loud, loud and clear. They passed this uh, interoperability and prior authorization final rule, CMS-0057F. And this law basically says beginning 2026, that the payers will be required to send prior authorization decisions within 72 hours for an urgent or expedited prior auth and within seven days for all other prior auths, that these need to be done um, electronically um, and there needs to be, and if it's denied, you need to know the reason why it was denied. Uh, again, I think this is a step forward and um, thanks to all of you who have pushed on this hard enough where it's become um, now, policy. I want to um, uh, end with a Ask Kush Anything uh, question from um, the great friend and great rheumatologist from Galway, Dr. Ronan Kavanaugh. Listen up. Hi, Jack. This is Ronan Kavanaugh, rheumatologist in Galway, Ireland. I have a question about methotrexate-induced nodulosis. Um, I've seen a number of patients develop rheumatoid nodules, and although we see them much less frequently, it can be a particularly challenging problem, uh, particularly for patients who appear to be in remission. So my first 
questions really whether you thought that methotrexate was actually responsible for uh, rheumatoid nodulosis and what your approach is to patients who develop rheumatoid nodules despite effective treatment. Um, secondly, um, I wondered whether you were aware of any data um, uh, regarding the use of any particular biologic or immunomodulatory therapy in improving rheumatoid nodules um, uh, for those patients who develop them with good disease control otherwise. Thank you, Ronan. Great question. I'm usually calling him to get his answers, so it's kind of him to um, ask my opinion. Of course, a great friend would only ask the unanswerable question, um, and but I'll do my best because this is an unanswerable question. Um, I'll say boldly at the front, I don't believe that there is such a thing as methotrexate accelerated nodulosis or methotrexate-induced nodulosis. And now I know I have at least 30 of you who are going to tackle me at the next ACR meeting and tell me how wrong I was. Um, the fact here is that, let me just give you another analogy. I'm going to invent a new um, pro drug-induced problem. And the drug-induced problem is going to be JAK inhibitor-induced interstitial lung disease. I just invented that off the top of my head. But, uh, but now that I've said it, now in the next four years, there'll be papers because JAK inhibitor use is becoming widespread. ILD affects 40% of, of, of rheumatoid patients. Um, people are going to start to draw um, causal uh, associations rather than just this, these, these just being casual. And I think these are casual. The, the story behind methotrexate, and by the way, the same uh, story with ILD has arisen in the past that ILD is being caused by TNF inhibitors and being caused by leflunamide. Uh, and that came out as those drugs were being developed and becoming very popular. Methotrexate is widely popular, right? I, and, and, and nodulosis affects 30% of patients. So um, what can you say about that association? It's never been truly proven. It doesn't have a truly distinctive pathology to methotrexate-induced nodules compared to other nodules. Here's some facts that color my thinking. One, if you look at the literature on this problem, almost all the reports, the predominance of reports, um, starts in like the late 1980s, a lot in the 1990s, a few in the two, early 2000s. You know, there's, there, there are reports in, you know, 2022, 2023, but they're always single case. Even the ones that were reported in the 80s and 90s, um, they're very small series, and most of them are case reports. And presumably, the authors who wrote those papers themselves had a few hundred rheumatoids, and they're reporting on a select number of people. Again, everybody's on methotrexate. Everybody with RA has a risk of getting nodulosis. So how do you know that methotrexate is causing nodulosis? And the answer, of course, usually is they didn't have nodules before. I put them on methotrexate, and they got nodulosis. And even they got nodulosis even when their disease was controlled. What's the profile? What I've seen is usually older um, nodules appearing mostly on the hands. But the other thing is they get nodules in strange, strange places. So on the larynx and in the pericardium and in the lungs. And, you know, uh, so that's another thing. Um, here's the approach. And I, 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 don't, uh, I don't have a drug that I would prefer. To, first off, I would not recommend surgery. The few studies that I saw that looked at the natural history of this showed that they tend to go away with time. 
in the majority of patients. Uh, and assume, and but that doesn't, I can't tell you what the majority of patients were getting treated because they all got treated very differently. Uh, so that's a problem. The second issue is what drug would I use? Um, my simple answer would be you have to make that decision based on whether you think the nodulosis is related to activity, in which case you're going to step up activity, and I would increase the methotrexate and add on another drug, or whether you think it's not related to activity, related to the drug, and I, that's pretty simple, just change drug. You live in an era where you've got like 31 options in the, in the biologic DMAR targeted synthetic world, uh, and I'm including all the biosimilars in there, uh, to treat your RA patients. The literature does not show any one drug to look good. I saw reports about penicillamine working. I saw reports of rituximab working. Um, so again, if my back is getting against the wall and, and I need to help a, a good friend like Ronan, my advice is I would try a JAK inhibitor or I would try methotrexate. Uh, and I'd be more inclined to, um, uh, not methotrexate, rituximab. I'd be more inclined to rituximab if they were um, high titer CCP positive. But I don't have any data. That's just me shooting from the hip. The other important point to make on these people is that um, a number of reports in the literature of people thought to have methotrexate nodulosis, but biopsy showed it wasn't. It was paniculitis, or it was cancer, or it was a granulomatous disease, or whatever. So if they're atypical in their location or their appearance, not what you would expect to see with RA, you may want to get a biopsy of patients like that. Thanks, Ronan, for giving me a real head-scratcher. Tune in next week for the podcast.